again. Hello. You all set? All set. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. Uh, I'm very excited today. I mean, I'm always excited on this on this podcast, but particularly so because, um, you know, even though this podcast started out mainly focused on actors and fields related to that, and that's uh, that's great. Uh, but I've also been lucky enough to start getting people from other walks of life and other fields to uh, talk about their life and their careers and so forth. And I'm very excited today to speak to uh, Abingdon Mullen. She has quite a variety of, of uh, careers and things she does with her life. She is a pilot. She is also the founder and CEO of the Abingdon Foundation, which is a nonprofit devoted to supporting uh, the uh, women getting into what we call STEAM fields, which stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Mathematics. Uh, she also has a company called the Abingdon Company that makes watches that are designed around the idea of great watches for women uh, in aviation. Um, so just many different cool things, and she's also a scuba diver and a mountain climber and probably a million other things I'm not even aware of. So uh, very excited uh, to talk about all this and more. So Abingdon Mullen, uh, welcome, and thank you again so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, interestingly, and not really surprisingly now that I've met her, but I want to know the story, uh, I got connected to you through Dr. Bethany Miller, who, uh, just like you, has quite a variety of, of balls in the air in her life, so to speak. Uh, one of them being um, that she is your director of operations for the Abingdon Foundation, which she is very passionate about, um, as we found out when she was on the podcast. And, um, you know, her whole other thing is what she calls flux agents, which is all about people who have diverse career journeys in their lives, and both you and her certainly belong to that category, so it seems, again, uh, like a no-brainer that you two would, would get along. But did you guys originally meet because you're both pilots, or for another reason? Well, we did meet at the Women in Aviation Conference, mm -hmm. so there was, it was centered around aviation and us both being pilots, but mm -hmm. she was... Um, actually in her flight suit because she <laughs> is also ex-military. Right. And she came up to my watch company's booth, uh, gosh, almost a decade ago, and basically just walked right up to me and said, you are Abington. I came to the conference to meet you. Wow. A statement that I, I remember. There's... You know, you go to these conferences and trade shows and events, and and after so many, they all kind of run together. Um, but when somebody comes up for that, they definitely stick out. So of course, been friends ever since. Well, again, that goes along with her whole philosophy, and you know, she told me other stories along those lines, but I had didn't. I don't believe she told me that particular story. So that's very cool. Now. Now, 
did you already have the Abingdon Foundation at that point, or did she end up helping you start that later on? Uh, I didn't have the foundation at that point. Right. The foundation was launched on the 10-year anniversary of the watch company, which uh, was in 2017. Amazing. So it took us a year to get the 501c3 uh, designation from the IRS. Sure. Uh, that is a long process. So oh, yeah. Looking to start a, a nonprofit, just be aware that it will take time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I was um, – uh, so we launched uh, we launched on the 10 year anniversary, which was November. So when I was with another friend of mine, Natalie Berman, who is an airline captain, uh, her and I were in Chicago, where she's from, and I'm in Las Vegas. I was there on a trip, and we got together, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about uh, breaking off my scholarship program that I offer through my company into its own nonprofit so that I might be able to add more scholarships to more steam industries. Um, aviation is a great industry, but there's uh, that but women don't have a passion for that. They have a passion for maintenance and tech ops or for the sciences or for construction or agriculture. Um, there's so many other fields that are non-traditional for women, but yet when somebody gets exposed to it, they become very passionate about it. And I love the fact that most of the customers that I have come into contact with and the, and the people I've met through the watch company are doing everything. I mean, I have a customer that won't even tell me what she does because it's that top secret. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just a very dynamic group of women that are hikers and divers and chemists and engineers and uh, pilots and all of the included. So uh, with that conversation with Natalie, she was very, very excited about it. And she said, well, let's start calling some people and see who we could get on the board. Bethany was at the top of my list. She was um, one of the, one of the best people I know that is not only a mentor, um, but a, incredible businesswoman uh, and in, in just an inspiration to be around you you get lit up by her light and um, and we formed a fantastic board of directors for our foundation within a year within actually a few months absolutely I, I love everything about this story and I, and I want to get you know really into it with you and I also want to talk about as you alluded to you know some of the things involved in starting and running a nonprofit. You know, I'm sure uh, there will be people listening who really would love uh, some some information on that. And hopefully, can can do great things like you've done. <clears throat> and um, yeah, there's there's so much I want to talk about with you. So um, uh, so yeah, let's start with the foundation itself. Um, interestingly, you mentioned that. You were already doing something along those lines, giving scholarships uh, via your watch company, um, which is great. Uh, but for again, tell everybody a little bit more about exactly what the Abingdon Foundation does and and what it's all about. Sure. Well, our mission at the Abingdon Foundation is to promote the female pursuit of more than just steam industries either recreationally or professionally. Uh, if you want to get into working on your car as a hobby, 
because you're good with mechanics, we can show you some resources. Um, if you want to uh, uh, become an aerospace engineer for Boeing, uh, we can show you some resources. We can lead you down the path that you want to take, uh, even if it's just for fun and you want to experiment in your own time and, and have fun and keep it as a hobby, or if you'd like to do it as a career and begin to get paid for it. Um, we do that through communication, through networking, through outsource and resources, um, and through our scholarship program. And what I mean by that is uh, we walk the walk and we talk the talk. So uh, when we talk the talk, what that means is I'm encouraging a woman at the local fire department to go to a middle school, a high school, or a college and get in her firefighting outfit, um, her uniform, and go to that classroom and tell the class what it is to be a firefighter, how she got there, how much she gets paid, what does her daily look like. I also want a professional e-gamer to show up in her pajamas because every e-gamer I know, they just um, (laughs) do their their job in their pajamas and do the exact same thing that that firefighter did. So when we have that visibility in a classroom and we take, 13, 14-year-old kids um, that have never been exposed to something like this, and they not only see uh, their first firefighter or they see their first pilot or their first engineer, um, they meet the guys that, that started Snapchat and some of these other tools that they're using on their phones. We're encouraging women to show up in these classrooms. So it's not just important for the girls to see this, but it's also important for the boys to see this too. So that's talking the talk and the way we are um, asking people to do this or getting people involved with the foundation which any of your listeners can do is uh, reach out to us we will be publishing education kits on our website for the 22 industries that we have listed and these education kits include an icebreaker um, if you've never spoken to a class before we will help you um, be prepared for that talk um, we'll give you activities for your industry. We'll have questions that you can ask the class to help keep them engaged with you. Um, and we'll provide some follow-up if you want to have the opportunity to follow up with that classroom or if the teacher wants the opportunity to follow up with you uh, with their class. So that way we're able to not just say, hey, yeah, go to a classroom and talk. Um, a lot of people, they've never talked to classrooms before. And uh, public speaking is not always intuitive for many individuals. So we can help prepare you with our education kits that you can take this PDF, this packet, in with you that will be chock full of questions and entertainment and activities and icebreakers and data as well about the industry that you're in that you might not have even known. So that's talking the talk. Walking the walk is our sponsorship and our our it's the sponsorship sponsorship scholarship but the reason i say sponsorship is because most scholarships they hand over a check you've won a scholarship you get money to do x y or z what we are doing is we're offering a fully paid airfare hotel registration to the leading industry conference that you are interested in so we've offered sponsorships to women from Ireland, from the Dominican Republic, from South Africa, from all over the United States, Mexico, Canada, 
And what we're doing is if they apply for, let's say, the dive sponsorship, we fly them out. We take them to the largest dive show, which is DEMA, the Dive Equipment Marketing Association show. Um, I believe they're over over 10,000 in attendance, and it's everybody from the dive industry. Uh, it's the dive shops to the operators worldwide. People are flying in from all over the world to attend this show, and we will link you arm in arm and introduce you to the key individuals that you would want to know to further yourself in the dive industry. We do that for the helicopter industry, technology industry, airplane aviation industry, um, which has their own separate show from the helicopters. Uh, though they're both in aviation, they're kind of two separate industries. Uh, we are doing it for the dive for tactical as well. We, we've issued a sponsorship to the shooting, hunting, outdoor trade show. Um, which is massive. Every piece of tactical equipment, military equipment, all the newest technologies. It's a fascinating show. Um, and then we want to reach out to uh, have at least 20 different sponsorships in a given year is our major goal. So we'll have two, on average, sponsorships being issued per month to STEAM and non-traditional fields for women. Uh, all fantastic. Uh, and one of the many things I love about everything you just said, you know, first of all, I love that when you were talking about the, the professionals addressing classes and all the, the way you provide them with materials and, and training and everything and how you really want it to be about the details, you know, as you said, how it works, how you got there, what the day is like, what you get paid. You know, because I'm a very nuts and bolts person, and I, I love that you're doing that rather than just sort of platitudes or generalities, you know? And um, so that's all, you know, amazing. And I meant to say earlier, I remember when Bethany was on, I don't remember the exact stat, but she gave me a stat about, you know, percentage or number of, of women who are, who are pilots or something like that. And, you know, I, I knew it was still unfortunately fairly low, but I was staggered by the exact number she gave me. I was like, that's, that's just, you know, awful. So, uh, it's great that you guys are working to, to change that. Um, so, uh, yes. So, First, uh, and I want to get back to how you fund these scholarships and everything else, but let me ask you a general question. You mentioned all the different industries that you, that you work with and everything. And in terms of this concept of STEAM, I was struck by, it was very interesting to me because when you break it down, you have science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. And in my mind, the first three and the fifth go perfectly well together. Science, technology, engineering, and math. Those are all part of the same overall category, I would think. The arts seems like a little bit of a monkey wrench in the middle there. What what makes that go with those other four? Well, I think anybody that has ever used the program Photoshop or Illustrator or Final Cut Pro mm -hmm. or any of the Adobe suites would argue that arts definitely belongs in in the STEM acronym. Mm. Um, arts is the language of the other four. Right. If you want to get into astronomy, for example, mm -hmm. 
you see these beautiful images, which we now have great technology that provides actual photographs. But back in history, it was paintings, celestial paintings of the heavens. Sure. And your concept of perception in art, even at a very basic rudimentary paint on a canvas level, had to be almost with an engineering mind. Artists express science, technology, and mathematics and engineering through art. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe that arts are which of engineering. If if you take an iPhone, which is one of the best examples of today's technology, any smartphone really, but specifically the iPhone and most of the Apple products today, that is built to be beautiful. Yeah. None of the other smartphones are as beautiful as an iPhone. Mm. It's eye-catching. It's sleek. It catches the light. It fits your hand. Um, It's smooth. There's everything that is inside of that iPhone was built based on science, technology, engineering, and math. But the fact that it's the number one selling phone is because it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. You need to have both. Makes sense to me. I love that answer. Absolutely. I I get exactly what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, Very cool. So getting back to the foundation and the scholarships, um, uh, why don't we start with how you got started and then we'll get into how you still fund everything or, or maybe it'll be the same answer. But, you know, you said you got it started, you got your board of directors together, and then this was about how many years ago now? Uh, just 2017, so we're not even completed our second year. Oh, wow. So less than two years now. Amazing. And so how did you get started? How did you uh, start? I guess the first step, or one of the first steps would have to be to get to get funding, right? Right, and we do operate on a um, very slim budget until we can get access to grants or large donors. Mm-hmm. Um, most of... The customer base, when we announced that we were going to be breaking off a nonprofit that was going to be dedicated to the scholarships, mm-hmm. we had overwhelming support from small to large donations, anything from $20 to $500 and mm-hmm. thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our largest donation to date is around $5,000, and that was from a single individual, um, mm-hmm. which was an absolute blessing. Sure. Um, but we really have created, luckily, as for interchanging sponsorship and scholarship. It's just a habit. But uh, when we were doing this company, taking a portion of the proceeds from watch sales and putting it right towards the sponsorship. Um, I know where to, uh, um, how should I say, Donated rooms from hotels or airlines to help they be a sponsor and to help lower the cost. Um, the average cost of each sponsorship is around five thousand dollars. So, and it, and that does vary based on if the person that wins is from an internet location versus a domestic location. Um, and uh, and so right now we truly are still working off of donations, and we accept donations through our website. Um, Feel free, please, if this is something that you believe in. Uh, 
help what we're doing. Um, when we build out the rest of our website to include the resources that we want to provide to anybody that visits that might have a question about the industries that we are catering towards, we are planning on providing that information for free. And that means that we do need donors to help us keep that information for free. I would not want this to be a paid membership type nonprofit because there are underprivileged students in areas that wouldn't have the opportunity to hear about these resources if they had to pay for them. And even if it was a small $5 membership, that sometimes is a big difference for them. So I really want to keep the uh, website full of organizations that you could join, um, groups in your local area that help support the, in the industry that you're interested in, websites that you can go to to practice coding. Um, I just found out about one this last weekend at the Women in Technology International Summit. Uh, all of those types of links we want to provide and also different resources that we can just have. It's almost like a small library of different places around the country and around the world from the best trade show to go to if you want to get into consumer electronics i recommend ces um and if uh, you want to go to the number one air show in the world which happens to be in oshkosh wisconsin the eaa air venture will give you access to where those events take place how to join different groups that are either female oriented or just industry-oriented, um, what free resources there are online. If we can keep providing that information for free, then we're going to expose more people to it. And that's the goal. It's not to try and create some exclusive club that you have to pay a $40 membership to to, to help support the nonprofit. We're working off of donations. We're working off the goodness of people because they want to help middle school, high school, and college-aged people decide what they want to do. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely remarkable. Yeah, and, you know, um, you know, I, it's all donation-based, as you said, and we'll, of course, post the links to your site and anything else you, you want to share uh, in the episode notes here. Um, so that's great that you guys are doing it, you know, the real thing from the ground up, like you said. Um, and I want to get back to more of that, but, you know, you're, you're clearly, you know, so genuinely passionate about this. I can hear it just from hearing you talk, uh, the way you're talking. Um, and you said it started for you because you were doing this, uh, you were doing some, some, uh, some, uh, I'm sorry, what's the word, scholarships through your, um, through your watch company, uh, what initially made you go, this is a way I want to give back? Well, two stories. The first is how I got into it. Mm -hmm. um, I was 14, and I went to John Burroughs High School in Burbank, California, um, kind of in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, my career center had these free lunches first Wednesday of the month. And I always went for the free food. Uh, mm -hmm. 14 years old, it was Subway or Pizza. Somebody came in and talked about what they did for a living, and that was that. Uh -huh, gotcha. um, and uh, this one particular Wednesday, I walked in. I'm always early to everything, so I was the first one there, and then all these 
voice started trickling in, and I was like, hmm, oh, it must be construction or something. When, mm. Where's the pizza? You know? Right, right. Really, there's nothing. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, in walked two pilots from a local flight school at Burbank Airport. At this time, they used to have flight schools. They don't have those anymore at Burbank. It's become too busy of an airport. Ah. But they came in and started talking about what it was to fly for a living and how you could get paid to travel. And they said two things that were really important, um, or I should say that really struck me. The first was you didn't have to join the military to learn how to fly. Mm -hmm. There's university programs. There's little flight schools at at, uh, different small airports, um, which is what they were from. There were other means of learning how to fly. I always thought everybody came from the military that flew airplanes. Right. And then the second thing that they said was you don't have to do the airlines after you do know how to fly. You could tow banners over stadiums. You could um, do the traffic watch on the morning over the freeway. Um, you could fly leaf aid to underdeveloped countries. You can do all sorts of things. There's aviation is a, is a wide arena. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, it sounds amazing. And so that's how I got exposed to it. I was exposed to it at 14, and it was at that time that I decided, yes. I want to be a pilot. Uh, first pilot in my family. I had to fund all my flight training, but I figured it out. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was it was one of the best things that has ever happened. It's completely pivotal, changing in yeah. my lifetime. Yeah. And so that's because it happened to me like that. I would love that to happen for somebody else because I truly love to fly. And even though now I'm president of the foundation and I'm running the watch company and I have staff members and volunteers and all these individuals that I'm working with and mentoring and um, we're all helping each other, I have to fly once a week. So if I just do it as it's become more of a hobby for me now than it than it was initially when I was working as an active pilot. And I am tight-rated up in the Airbus level um, so I can fly at the airline level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I fly now more for fun. Sure. Because it's, it's like if, uh, if you didn't do your fun thing on the weekend, then you're just going to be really crunchy when you go back to work on Monday, yep. you know? Yep. So, so that's what flying is for me, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity that I had in high school. So that was the first thing that happened. Beautiful. Absolutely. And then the second thing that happened was I was a, a sales pilot um, for a company called Lance Air. They make experimental aircraft out of Oregon. And I was in charge of doing tours for people that came through the facility and wanted to see what it was like to manufacture an airplane. And this father-daughter uh, duo came in one uh, Friday, and um, I was she was a high school senior. And um, it was interesting. That's not the normal type of uh, people that come through to tour an aircraft factory. And they had come down all the way from Portland, which was a, a long drive to Van Dorgan. So they came, and I was talking to them about, you know, what brought them here and what was the interest. And she said, well, I'm going to an aeronautical university next fall, and I don't know if I want to become an aerospace engineer or if I want to be a pilot, and I kind of have to decide which level of course to take. And I was like, that's interesting. I'm going to the Women in Aviation Conference in a, in a few weeks. If you'd like, and maybe this is really awkward because we just met, but if you'd like, um, and if your parents are okay with it, and of course her dad was right there, I said, 
feel free to come. Uh, it's not my first rodeo at this conference. I can introduce you to the folks. Your university is going to be there. They're there every year. Um, and I can introduce you to some aerospace engineers and some pilots and see maybe that might help you make a decision. And so they discussed it over a few days and called me up and said, yeah, actually, we would like to do that if that offer still stands. And that was really kind of the first time I had a, a sponsorship um, to that event. And at the end of it, she was glowing. She knew exactly where she wanted to go. She was so grateful for that opportunity. She said, I want to be an aerospace engineer. After talking to both, this is what I want to do. And I'm so thankful that I was here. This was so valuable. I was like, wow, I wonder if I could do this for more women and just to help give them some guidance because this is a very valuable event that more people should know about. And that was the second thing that helped me formulate how I was going to offer these sponsorships. Well, both fantastic stories. And again, it just continues to demonstrate how important mentorship and, you know, passing things along to young people and so forth is, is just an essential uh, thing that, that is, you know, is so important. Um, so that's, that's really terrific. So, um, so getting back to the foundation and the scholarships, um, you know, so you, you said that, you know, how you get your, your funding is through donations. And then how do you evaluate the actual applicants and decide, you know, who to give the scholarships to? That's an excellent question. Um, I never got any scholarships when I was in high school and I was kind of mandated to apply for two per week, according to the class I was in, the school I was at, and my parents. Um, mm. And uh, most of the scholarship applications are essays. You have to write an essay. Mm-hmm. And I am a horrible essay writer. Mm. So I always felt like this was just a waste of time for me because I just don't write well. Um, but you heard how passionate I am about this. Yep. I can definitely communicate. I just can't do it through pen to paper. So everybody communicates and learns. They receive and they give information in different ways. And so we didn't want to pigeonhole an applicant by saying write an essay or do it this way. So what we've done is we said open book. You do it how you want to. You do you. And so we've had uh, poetry written. We've had videos created. Mm-hmm. Um, even if somebody created 10 watch straps. Uh, that we're going to be incorporating into the line of the, of the watch company here mm-hmm. next year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we had somebody write a mentorship program for the foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've designed stickers and done graphic design. Uh, someone translated our entire website in Spanish. <laughs> we kept it open so that they could do what their strength was. Yeah. And basically the way we grade or the criteria, there's a few logistic things that they have to get done. You know, they've got to fill out the form on our website, which is uh, your name, your location. It's, it's a very basic form, but just so we know who we're talking to, where they are, in case we do have to arrange international travel. Um, the fact that they're over 18, uh, that is a criteria. And, uh, and then... After that, it's really about how passionate they were with their application. So it's kind of subjective. Yeah. Um, but we we discuss it as a group, as a board, 
um, what this person is doing here, what this person is doing here, why it's important, how it adds value to the foundation in our promotion of women in non-traditional fields. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they can apply multiple times throughout a year. So we did have a winner one time that she was incredibly active on our social media. And she's the one who designed the or sticker that we pass out to everything. Oh, great. And she's also the one who um, d- uh, translated our website into Spanish, which we know oh. took time. Terms and conditions page alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, sure. Uh, I, I love that. She continued to yeah. apply. And so you could tell that this was something she wanted. She wanted it more than anybody else, and she proved it. Well, that's so great. And, of course, it opens the door to you know, other things like those things she's done for you, uh, which is great. I think that's a really wonderful out-of-the-box way to do it. And you're absolutely right. You can't expect everybody to compete in the same exact way of communicating. It doesn't mean they're not as or more or more qualified. Of course not. Uh, it reminds me of, this may be completely apocryphal, but I remember hearing a story in high school that, the Harvard admission essay question was, what is courage? And somebody sent in a two-word one that just said, this is, and uh, apparently got in. I, mean, I don't know the details, and it may not even be a true story, but uh, I'll never forget that, hearing about that. But anyway, so um, that's very cool. So um, let's talk about some more of the nuts and bolts, as you alluded to earlier, of starting and running a nonprofit. And actually, before we even do that, you know, when I meet someone who's able to have such a diverse career, you know, life like you have, I'm always very impressed by it. And there are people, you know, and it's obviously these days so many people are, are doing so many amazing things like that. And we want to inspire young people to do so. But let's talk about a little bit about your own personal strategies, your time management, et cetera. You already mentioned that you're early to everything, and I immediately thought, oh, of course, that's a habit of someone who's busy and successful like yourself. Um, but, you know, and I know at this point, as you said, you have the watch company, you have the foundation, and whatever else you do, but how in general do you sort of see your day-to-day life and manage your own time uh, juggling all these balls? Well, I have been trying to figure out how to make a 36-hour watch yeah. instead of just a 24-hour <laughs> Sure, watch. I bet, I yeah. Absolutely, I bet you are, yeah. <laughs> but until that day comes, yeah. um, I, uh, I do get up very early. I'm typically up before 5, mm-hmm. and um, I do like to have some downtime in the morning. So I typically have a book out and a nice cup of tea. And it's even before my husband wakes up, so um, it's kind of my time. Nice. And that just sets me off because I'm not one of those roll out of bed and out the door. Right. Uh, that's that's how he actually functions. It's funny because I have to have breakfast. I yeah. have to ease into my morning. And yeah. um, and he's just like, up, oh, wash the face, brush the teeth, and out the door. And I'm like, how do you do that? I yeah. Just, I can't do that. Yeah. So I've got uh, I've got a good hour to myself in the morning, and um, I do try to be in the office any time before 8 or, like, between 7 and 8. Mm-hmm. Because here in Las Vegas, uh, we're West Coast time. So I've got a lot of individuals that I work with over on the East Coast, and I can catch them in their morning. 
in their start. And I'm very productive before my team comes in, just on my own, wrapping up things. Um, and then uh, once people start coming in to the door and we start working on a day, um, I actually split up my week. So this is when I used to run my company by myself before I had a staff. Mondays was always marketing Mondays. Tuesdays was always accounting. Wednesdays was were always uh, customer issues. Um, Thursdays was always uh, websites. So we've actually kind of stuck a bit to that general theme. Mm-hmm. And we discuss as a team any new marketing opportunities on Monday. We always do that. On Tuesdays, I make sure that our accounting is up to snuff and up to date, and I run the reports that I need to. And so I always, I've kind of established those habits. Um, and made sure to follow up with my team that deals with accounting on Tuesday. If they haven't gotten me what they need to get, then I'm always reminded every Tuesday, hey, I need to get these things. So that's kept me on track a lot. Um, Fridays I leave kind of open-ended, um, and because uh, there's always something going on. <laughs> you didn't see coming. And, uh, and then with the foundation, I typically deal with anything foundation-oriented. It's a different type of organization because we're all volunteers. So um, I don't have clock-in hours and clock-out hours like I do with the company. Uh, it's all tasks that we need to just get accomplished. And so those I'll deal with kind of in the evenings. Um, my husband is actually very involved with the, the company foundation just being one of my confidants and uh, my for one trust. And so if ever I have an idea about something, he's he will help with that. He ran his own company for a, a decade and then he sold it last year. So he's got a little bit more free time on his hands to, to assist too. So um, we sometimes spend our evenings discussing what we can do here or there. And, and that's, that's a day in the life. Um, I don't really stop on the weekends. But every now and then, uh, like this weekend, of course, I'm going to be going to visit my father for Father's Day weekend. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I will definitely carve out personal time. But, Lee, I love what I do. I mean, if, if I could do this 24-7, I'd sleep, i wake up, I'm excited. And I've had my company for 12 years. And the foundation, two years. And I still get excited in the morning when I wake up. And that's, that's what you want it to be, and I completely understand, I get it. Um, that's how I feel about this podcast, among other things, to, to be honest, uh, on, on a much smaller scale, of course, but, but, um, so, and, you know, first of all, I love how organized you are, how you said about dividing up the days and everything. I think that's a great example of, you know, it's easy to get overwhelmed. You know, people wonder, how the heck do people run companies? How the heck do people do these, these seemingly uh, humongous, not seemingly, these humongous tasks and things? But anything can be done if you break it down into steps and a plan and components and whatever. So anyway, I love how you break down your days that way and, and how you're organized like that. Um, so and you, so you were just explaining something that's a perfect segue to my next question, and we'll get and we'll get into the origins of the watch company as well. We're sort of sort of uh, going backwards here a little bit, uh, which is fine. But yes, so to be clear, you're talking about your main, you know, uh, uh, 
for-profit uh, venture being the watch company, and then, of course, the foundation is the nonprofit. So um, let's talk about the nonprofit thing again for a minute. So uh, first of all, you know, as you just said, you guys are all volunteers. So that was my question, which is, you know, I know there's different, you know, rules around nonprofits, but I believe you can, you know, pay yourself a salary if you want to, but you're saying in your case, you and the other people on the board do not make any money from the, from the foundation. That is correct. Great. I mean, not great. I mean, that's, that's your choice, but that's a very impressive choice. So yes, I do think it's great, actually. Um, and, you know, so you talked about the difficult process of getting the nonprofit status and starting it. And of course, I'm sure that is one, one aspect of it. So take us a little bit through that process. And as you said, for people out there who might be thinking about starting a nonprofit, that's one of those things that I think a lot of people, you know, say they want to do or talk about doing. And obviously many people do do it. But, you know, what's it, what's really involved and what was your experience uh, in, in making that happen? Well, I'll be I'll be very real. I'm I'm very transparent because I I love listening to business podcasts and I hate when I get general information. So I'm going to get nitty gritty with that's you. That's what I okay. want. That's not only is it okay. I'm the same way. That's exactly what I want. Thank you. Great. Um. So there's there's really kind of three ways I think that you can go about this. And uh, the first thing you have to realize is the IRS is exempting you from taxes. So. You don't have to pay taxes with a nonprofit. Uh, that's a big deal to the IRS because the IRS really wants their money. Yep. So with the way that our foundation was, was formed, it was formed from a for-profit company. That's going to send red flags. If you have a company right. and you want to start a nonprofit um, related to that company, realize that the IRS is going to scrutinize you and say, hey, is this – for-profit company trying to shell money or anything by having a nonprofit. So for five years, right, of course. you have to, like I, I cannot have a portion of the proceeds of the sales of watches fund anything in the foundation for the first five years. Ah, because I see. It, it, does, it does not, the IRS could, um, could ask, hey, what are you doing? Yep. And take your 501c3 away as much quicker than when they when they gave it. Mm -hmm. So there is that. Be aware of that um, for the reason that you're starting a nonprofit. Uh, it, it also depends on how much money you have to start the nonprofit. Um, if you want to pay a lawyer to do all the paperwork and file with the state and file with the IRS because you have to do two filings, um, then that's going to be very expensive. But I do know somebody who did that for her nonprofit, and uh, she got it done very quickly, about two months. Mm -hmm. It cost a lot of money, but right. she was able to get it done that quickly. Right. We didn't have that type of money. So what we did, and we also didn't have the knowledge. We, I, I know how to do everything related to a business and a for-profit, but nonprofit was new to me. So, um, and most of the people on our board, we had some, uh, we had a, like Bethany, uh, a lot of women that are experienced with nonprofits, but more on a participatory or a volunteer or just kind of an, an overall mission. Uh, involvement, not the administrative side of right. the nonprofit. Right. So, um, 
And so we were all learning how to file the proper paperwork or deal with the taxes and what you had to do with the federal government versus the state government and how to solicit for donations. There's all these different forms that you have to do. And if you don't get a certain amount in donations per year, you only have to send in a postcard for your taxes. Um, and uh, our treasurer, Christy, she knows all those rules. So we kind of had to learn all of that. But what we did was we hired a group called a foundation group. And I'm not endorsed by them by any means. Uh, I don't think that they were perfect, um, but they were very helpful. And they cost, I want to say, around $2,500 in total. And uh, each of us just kind of contributed a little bit of money toward that. And uh, the foundation group really held our hand on how to fill out the paperwork, where to send it, and what we needed to do. So that was that was the best road for us because we really didn't know how to go forward. But if you have the money, hire a lawyer. If you don't have the money um, and you don't even have the money for a group like the foundation group, there's a few other companies out there that help uh, individuals form nonprofits then you are going to have to do a lot of research. And there is a lot of research out there, but unfortunately, it's Google. So you're going to get good research and bad research. So it's it's kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah, no, I get it. And uh, again, I love how you guys went all in and, you know, spent some of your own money and, you know, are not looking to make any money off of it. Uh, one similar resource for nonprofits here in New York that I know of is a company called Fractured Atlas. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in case anybody out there, uh, you know, is, is, I'm not sure if they're just exclusive to New York. I think they are, but um, you could look into them. So um, cool. So yeah, that's 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 great. Um, so let's see. So. Um, I remember what else I was about to say, but so uh, getting back to uh, the for-profit side of, of your uh, of your life, <laughs> um, the the watch company. Um, let's talk about how and when and why that started. So that started in 2006 is when I had the idea. Uh, 2006 was when I learned how to fly, and I got my private pilot. Uh, rating at uh, Santa Monica Airport, and after I got my uh, my license, I wanted to treat myself to a gift. And uh, every good pilot has a good headset, protect ears, mm. uh, a good pair of sunglasses, but don't get polarized because sure. your screens go black, your avionics panel. Oh. Um, yeah. And uh, but you want to protect your eyes, and then a good watch and an aviation watch is a watch with an inner or outer rotating bezel. Um, Some of the more famous aviation watches out there are made by Sisson, and Breitling has a very high-end version. And uh, there's companies that make them, but nobody made them for women. And I'm 5'6", 110 driven wet. So Mm -hmm. there is nothing that didn't look like a grandfather clock hanging off my wrist. They were just big and black and bold and and blue and just had Top Gun all over it. It was just very, very not me. I mean, I'm sitting here right doing this interview and I'm in a dress. And so I couldn't have something like that. It just didn't fit. Mm -hmm. So um, that was when I started looking at, gosh, I I really want a pilot's watch, but I can't, I can't 
get one. So, um, and nothing's made. So I went to a holiday dinner with a bunch of other female pilots and, um, sponsored by the 99s, which is the oldest women pilot group in the world, uh, started by Amelia Earhart. Oh, um, back at the turn of the century. And we were having our annual holiday party and going around the room and everybody was talking about what they wanted for Christmas. And a woman said, you know, I've always wanted a pilot's watch, but they're never going to make anything for women. And I was like, huh, I had this idea two months ago and I looked and I didn't see anything. And everybody around the table pretty much agreed. Yeah, we're just too small of a market. 7% of the aviation industry is uh, female. And that equates to 50,000 women total in the United States have their pilot's license. Right. Uh, and that's private all the way up to the airline transport pilot license. So mm. uh, I didn't know that at the time. Uh, if you want to start a business, typically you do look at the market <laughs> and see if you have a product that could sell to a large market. Right. But here I started my company for completely selfish reasons. 22 years old, I wanted a pilot watch. And if nobody else is going to make it, I'm going to make it. And if I only have a small market of 50,000 people, well, then I only have a small market of 50,000 people. But at least I have a pilot watch. Yeah. So that's how I started the company or got the idea to start the company. And then 11 months later is when I launched it with the first two styles, which is, uh, they're called Jackie and Amelia. Perfect. And what, so again, getting into these, these kind of nuts and bolts, you know, how did you actually get it started? Did you, you know, how did you get the watches manufactured? You know, did you just use your own money? How did you actually do it? I did have some money saved up um, that I used on my own, and then I also asked friends and family to help me out, yeah. and um, I promised them, and this is, keep in mind, this is like 2006, 2007, the economy was doing great, mm-hmm. but it was about to crash, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, and I knew that if you're going to start a business, a lot of times they say, hope to be profitable by year three, hope to turn it. It depends, it depends on the business that you're starting, but a lot of times the first year or two, you're not making any profit. Right. So I knew at least by knowing that statement that I wasn't going to be able to pay back any investors, any of my friends and family um, for a while. Yeah. And so my agreement to everybody was, this is a loan. You're loaning me. X amount of dollars, and I'm going to pay you after five years, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to pay you anything beforehand. Mm-hmm. That was critical, actually, because of what ended up happening and um, in 2008 with the recession. Yeah. Um, because I was able to really bootstrap the company while the economy was crashing and make sure that every decision I made turned a profit and didn't waste any money. Um, So it was a great time to actually start a company because I had to start lean, whereas companies that started flush with cash had to lean down. Yep. I started with a very little amount of cash from friends and families, and I had to just start off lean. So I offered all my friends and family 150%, so they're going to gain 10% per year for Mm -hmm. five years. And -hmm. at the end of five years, I would give them 150%. Most of the friends and family uh, put in $5,000. And so I had several loans that I paid out $7,500 in 2012. And they all tell me I was the best investment that they had had because I stayed true to that. 
and I paid back everybody in five years, and that was fine. Um, how did I find a manufacturer? Well, hold on. Before you move on to that, I, I love that story you just told about the investments uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, first of all, uh, I am such a believer that, you know, anything big or worthwhile in life is a marathon, not a sprint. And especially as I get older, I, I can't rush. I'm not looking for the quick fix, whatever. Um, you know, I've made that mistake when I was younger. So the fact that you had the wisdom to go, I need five years, guys, is, is beautiful. I love that. And the fact that they agreed to it shows their belief in you. You know, some people, you know, say, you know, you know, would say, you know, if some, there are some people who would say, you know, I need five years and people would go, yeah, okay. Or some people just wouldn't want to be that patient to get their money back. So, um, in any case, it shows their faith in you as well. Um, and the promising them the, the 50%, uh, return on investment is also, uh, one very big of you to, to do that for them. And again, shows your faith that you knew it would work out or you believed it would. So that, that's a, <clears throat> a really remarkable story. I really like that. And this, this didn't involve, and I think that's very unique. I don't know. I've never heard of it being done that way before. And this, th there was no equity at all in the company, right? Just the money being given back. That's correct. Yeah. So, so, uh, is, so do you still own 100% of the company then? Uh, I don't. Okay. Because one of those original investors, at the end of the five years, she mm -hmm. approached me and said, you know what, instead of giving me my payout, I'd prefer to buy into the company. Ah, okay. And own part of the company. Because I see where you're taking it. And I'd like to be a part of it. Very cool. All right. So, and again, so because she because she saw what you were doing. All right. So now, I'm sorry. You were saying about how you took the, once you got the money, what you did, how you got the manufacturing, and so forth. Well, it wasn't a linear process. Okay. Um, I didn't get the money and then start doing the manufacturing. Oh, okay. I definitely had to uh, work all of it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, as I was working on getting the financing. I am um, 22 years old, right? So I don't know any watch manufacturers. I have no idea where to begin. A common question I get asked is, do you have a background in orology? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> uh, so what I did was I first did a Google search of who, where the best watches are made. Everybody first probably thinks of Switzerland as being the top country that yeah. produces um, uh, really high-quality watches. Yeah. And they are, that is true. Um, the next two countries are Japan and Germany. Um, if uh, you have a Citizen or a Seiko, anything like that, those are all coming out of Japan. Yeah. And um, they're very good, good quality watches. Um, and then I actually did, I did do a search for American watch manufacturers, and it was unfortunately crickets. There's no American watch maker and hmm. it hasn't been for some time now. Interesting. Um, there have been brands that are American built. Right. Uh, Shinola being one of the um, more recent brands that people hear about is like this American watch brand. Mm -hmm. But even their uh, products actually come from China. And yeah. um, 
they uh, they make the leather straps here in the United States, but mm. um, they had a bit of a controversy about that a few years ago. But they make a nice they make a nice watch and out of Detroit. Um, but really, there's there's not much offered in the ways of watchmaking here in the United States. So mm-hmm. I couldn't go to the U.S. I I asked about I did some research with my pilot friends, uh, the women, if they cared about a Swiss watch or if they did or didn't, and um, they really didn't. And um, it was one of the reasons I decided to go with Japanese initially. So the cost is just significantly lower, and the quality is very, very high. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, it, if as high as not, it's just, uh, movements. So, um, in order to keep price down, I looked at Japanese watch manufacturers. I reached out to a whole bunch through Alibaba. Alibaba.com back in 2007, 2008 was a very basic home page and their home page was two search boxes, not unlike Google's uh, homepage, which is the one search box. Right. This was two, but instead of, uh, you would type in whatever product you wanted to get made, and then the other search box is the drop down of every country in the world. So I selected Watches Japan, and I got connected with a ton of manufacturers in Japan. Hmm. I did the same thing for um, Watches Switzerland, Watches Germany. That's how I discovered that watches were not being made in the United States because nobody popped up. Um, but that introduced me to a world of manufacturers. Yeah. And I found my box packaging, and I found my watches through Alibaba. And um, a lot of people think that Alibaba is only China. No, the company was created in China, but it really is a connector for manufacturers and wholesalers worldwide. So um, I used Alibaba to find my manufacturers. I was, because of time changes between Europe and Asia and the United States, I was sometimes on the phone at midnight and uh, going over ideas, going over designs. I got a couple prototypes made. Um, the manufacturer I decided to work with, I even checked their business bureau for their country to see where they ranked. Mm-hmm. I asked for referrals right. of different companies um, that they make watches for. And uh, the manufacturer that I work with uh, also makes watches for Invicta, which is one of the um, most popular brands today. Um, so I knew that they can make uh, really durable watches. And... That. And when I said, you know, this is going to be a 40 millimeter women's watch, they're like, huh? And, I said, <laughs> and it's going to be an aviation watch. They're like, what? And so those things don't compute in the watch world because women don't fly in the watch world. Um, aviation watches are made for men. So what I was doing was very unique and trying to say I wanted an aviation watch with a pink pearl face and sort of see crystals around the bezel just was like, this is so weird. Why are you doing it? And like, let's, Don't worry. I got that figured out. And let's clarify in case anybody listening doesn't know, and I'll admit uh, for me as well, what exactly do we mean by an aviation watch? An aviation watch has a rotating bezel that is a slide rule. And this is a traditional um, aviation watch. What it will do is it will convert the standard system to the metric system. So liters to gallons, for example, 
Um, it will change statute miles, which is what we drive in. We drive in miles per hour, statute miles, to nautical miles. I fly in knots. Um, it will convert time, speed, and distance calculations. It will also do fuel consumption calculations. It basically acts as a backup if my instruments fail, certain instruments fail. It won't wow. give me my altitude, right. but it will tell me, you know, if your airspeed is this and your fuel gauges aren't working anymore, I can figure out using my watch what my fuel consumption is, looking at the time it takes me to my destination and my airspeed and several other factors. So it's, it's like having a manual calculator on your wrist, an old school flight roll. See, that's incredible. I didn't realize all that at all. So uh, pretty much any pilot, uh, we can assume, is wearing one of these when they're flying. I wouldn't make that assumption. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> most pilots I know wear a digital Timex that costs them $15 at Walmart. Ah, fair <laughs> but, enough. But, um, but I do like it, and I I. I do use the calculator a lot, and um, I get people all the time calling BS on that. Like, nobody ever knows how to use it after you're done with your private pilot journey. But I use it for the travel. It will also convert currency. So I remember being wow. in, um, I think I was in, in Thailand at, like, a market, and I really wanted this, this neat pair of Converse shoes that I saw on the street market. There's a really cool color of teal, and it had a really interesting pattern on it. They were definitely fake Converse, um, mm. but I love wearing my chest, so I, I live in Converse. And um, so I'm haggling with this woman, and I and she keeps pulling out her calculator, and it's like, it's telling me in, in Thailand's currency what the amount is, and I already had it set up on my aviation watch. And I would just glance at my watch and see what she was trying to tell me in dollars, and then I would respond with what I would prefer to pay. And she, at the end of it, we settled on um, a very inexpensive price, but it was it was a fun test of going back and forth in this like duel. And she was like, "Why do you keep looking at your watch?" I'm like, "I've got the currency conversion set up." She's like, "Really?" And so she ran. She, and then she's like, "Oh, let's test some things. Do this now. Do this amount." And we would. <laughs> Just go back and forth, and every time I beat her on the calculator, because I had it, I just looked. It was right there. So if you know how to use it, it's very handy. So obviously, again, you don't have to be a pilot to wear one of these. One, just because it's cool, and two, because of the functionality. That's fantastic. And I, uh, I assume. Okay, I don't. I don't assume. I'm asking. Uh, is there some history to this kind of watch? You know, were pilots using this kind of watch as part of their instrumentation back in the day before we had more advanced technology? Yes. Um, yeah. The aviation style watch has been used for decades. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if it was pre-World War II or post, mm -hmm. but when they put that slide rule around the bezel of a watch, um, that was uh, key. The first aviation style watches were really based off of um, accurate timekeeping and also stopwatches because in the air, you don't have stoplights and stop signs like you do on the ground. No. But you do have airways. And the only way to tell when you were done from one point to the next, you were at maybe an intersection, is by time. 
-hmm. So you had to have an accurate time because if I started at this waypoint, I took off from this airport, I know it will take me two minutes and 37 seconds at that speed to reach this intersection in the air. So having an accurate time and an accurate stopwatch was very key for pilots. And then when they were able to put the slide rule on and incorporate all the other things that I mentioned, then it really was kind of the birth of the aviation watch. Fantastic. It's another example of, you know, we take everything for granted now with technology and everything being computerized. But, you know, especially for people like pilots, yes, they have all their instruments and things, but they better also still know their old school math and how to do what they need to do because, you know, if something goes wrong, you know, it's on them. So uh, very, very interesting. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you, though. You were talking about the manufacturing. Well, so that's, I found my manufacturers through Alibaba. I um, worked with them uh, all hours of the night and over email, and we settled on two designs for the Jackie and the Amelia. The Amelia um, is more of like your everyday watch. It's the watch I'm actually wearing right now, and it comes in black and white, um, and it's uh, it's just an It's a solid-looking watch. You can wear it with um, a dress. You could wear it with uh, your jeans and a scruffy T-shirt. It just looks – it's a good, solid, everyday watch. The Jackie watch is – it has a pearl face, so a beautiful pink, white, or green pearl face, um, which right now we also have a really good deal going on. It's buy one, get one free on our website. Um, so uh, check out social media to find out what the coupon code is for that. But mm-hmm. you can get um, the Jackie watch, which normally costs five ninety five. You can get two for that price, which is amazing. Um, and uh, that watch has stones, the Swarovski crystals around the bezel. It's very flashy. It's very blingy. Amelia comes with a leather band, which, again, is more every day. Jackie comes with a steel band, which just makes this thing I pop. So I always get compliments when I wear the Jackie watch. Um, and Amelia is kind of more of just like your day. So we kind of call them the original sisters um, mm-hmm. because they're so opposite of each other, but they both do the same thing. And they're made for two different types of people. If you are kind of more of an everyday person that just wants a solid timepiece, Amelia, that's our number one seller. Um, but if you want something a little bit more flashy, a little bit more noticeable, gets gets the eye, stands you out in a room, you wear the Jackie. And our customer, um, customer rate is over 30%. So most of our customers um, have more than one style. And it's for different occasions. I love it, and that buy one, get one sounds like a no-brainer of a deal. That's amazing. Um, uh, People should definitely uh, take advantage of that, I think. Um, And again, we'll post uh, the website and any other other media you like uh, on the episode notes. Um, Okay, so you get these initial designs, you get the manufacturing deal done, and then how do you actually start selling? So the... My boyfriend at the time was a graphic designer, mm-hmm. and he and his brother helped me build the website for free. Nice. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think I, I actually had to – I remember having to learn Dreamweaver on my own, mm-hmm. and that 
with beef. I don't even think that program exists anymore. Um, if it does, I'm sorry, Dreamweaver. I, I <laughs> didn't know. But, yeah, I, I wouldn't but know. <laughs> it was kind of like the original web um, website maker from Adobe, and it was very source heavy, and you kind of had to know the difference between HTML and JavaScript and you know PHP and all these things that I just had no idea about. So uh, luckily, with uh, my boyfriend and his brother, they helped me build. Um, a rudimentary website and I was accepting checks initially. I couldn't even process credit cards. Wow. So um, then I got, I went to the bank and I signed up for their merchant services account, just Bank of America where I banked with and um, started putting in that into the website and then traction kind of started happening, but it was super word of mouth. It was very small at the beginning. I was lucky if I sold one a month. And, um, it wasn't something that I, I just didn't know how this was going to be, but then the aviation industry started to get wind of it. I got a couple articles written about it. Traffic picked up. Um, the website was doing pretty well and I was processing the orders weekly and, um, uh, but it was still just kind of me, myself and I, and I was, that's when I came up with that structure in the week where, okay, Monday, let's reach out to more press because that's free and they like the story. Tuesday, how are the books? Do I need to charge anything? Did credit cards go through? Have I cashed all the checks that have come in? You know, Wednesday, is the website broken? Any of the links broken? Okay, go through. I should probably change the homepage <laughs> picture. And Thursday, any customer issues? You know, that's how I broke up my week. I had my departments. And that's what I was doing just because I had to compartmentalize it for myself yeah. as I was building this. So it was genuinely, as you said, being patient, ground up, you know, uh, uh, just kind of one word of mouth at a time so and so on, uh, uh, which is, you know, which is, which is hard, but also impressive. Um, and, you know, you said something earlier about, you know, if my customer, my possible customer base is only X number, so be it. And I think a lot of people make them, and I'm no expert on this stuff, but it seems to me a lot of people make the mistake of, if it's not going to be huge, why bother? You know, first of all, if it's what you want to do, that's number one. And number two, even if you have a relatively small customer base, or at least at first, you can still do okay. You can still make money. It doesn't have to become Amazon to be a to be a successful small business. You know. I I agree to a point. Yeah. Um, because uh, when I launched the company in '07, uh, it was about 2011 that I was looking at my sales, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm stalling." Mm. This is four years later, and and. I, I don't know, how do I get new customers? So I would always ask at any of the events that I went to or just in follow-up because people would email in and say, hey, are you ever going to come out with a watch that does this? Mm -hmm. And I would always keep those emails in a separate folder and just refer to them to get ideas. If I heard the idea enough times, then yeah, why not? Let's do right. it. But one of the questions that I started to ask is, uh, what other hobbies do you guys do? What other things do you guys do? And scuba diving was the biggest um, common other hobby that pilots did, female mm -hmm. pilots did. Mm -hmm. So then in 2014, and this was after a pitch on Shark Tank, I came out with a dive watch. You were on Shark Tank? I was on Shark Tank. 
See, it's so funny. At some point, I was going to say, this sounds like something you would see on Shark Tank. I had, I had no idea you were actually on it. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't get a deal, um, which I'm grateful for the preparation that I had to have because I knew that was the number one question. 50,000 people, that's not a market. I wouldn't invest in that. So what are you going to do? Right. Well, women, female uh, scuba divers, women who dive, uh, there's over 3 million. And I think Patty certifi- certifies 900,000 a year. Mm-hmm. If I remember that correctly, I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember it being a huge amount of um, scuba certifications per year. That's mm-hmm. international. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started developing the first marina because the first dive watch, which is called Marina. Because I didn't get an investor from Shark Tank, I put it onto Kickstarter. We raised $66,000 and six months later had our first dive watch. And now we have watches for the travel industry, the dive industry, which were the official watch of the Women Divers Hall of Fame. And we have a new dive watch coming out next year um, in honor of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're coming out with automotive watches. For anybody who likes to ride motorcycles to NASCAR, Formula One, and drag racing, um, and uh, the truck series and all that fun stuff. Uh, more on the aviation and travel side, and then we're also getting into the boat and uh, fisher industry. So yachts and crews and fisherwomen and swimmers and just that entire industry and we just got approved for the army air force exchange so we're going to be able to be sold to military um uh, veterans and active and we're going to be coming out with a tactical watch for women that is a much smaller size so it looks nice that you can again wear it with a dress that's our whole thing is duality mm-hmm. use it in the field wear it nice um Dress it up, dress it down. It goes both ways. And so we have created a tactical watch that is going to do that, that the military can wear with perfect confidence that it will be able to hold up. So that is all uh, outstanding. I love all of it. Um, So to be clear, yeah, when you say approve for the military exchange, what what is that? So they have to approve everything that, soldiers and, and anybody in the military are allowed to wear on duty just because it has to be of a certain level of safety and quality and so forth? Well, they they don't have, uh, when it comes to a watch, most military just wear the G-Shock because that's the only thing really available mm-hmm. um, that they can beat up and, and it will take a good beating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a G-Shock is a very bulky watch and it's very sports uh, looking. Mm-hmm. Um, when I approached APHIS, which is Army Air Force Exchange, um, they sell on the bases. And they sell through their website, and they sell on all the bases around the world at the Army bases and the Air Force. PX Exchange is what they call it. And um, the people that live on base or the military that is a part of that base, mm-hmm. whether they live on base or not, uh, they get great discounts being military. So it's one of the most common questions that we get is, do you offer military discounts? And I can't verify whether or not you show me um, a real military ID or not. Mm. So I can't offer that through my site. So I've been 
I've been telling APHIS guys, I have a ton of customers that are military, and they they say that the watch um, abides by the rules that they that they have when they wear their dress. Um, so like your dress blues, your dress whites, the sure. nice uh, uniform. Yeah. Um, and they wear it out in the field, and it holds up. It doesn't break on them. So I got a ton of customers that are military. Is there any way? Because I would love to offer them a military discount through your stores. And they're looking at me like, this looks like a Michael Kors. This looks like a nice, beautiful watch. I'm like, oh, I know. But it's made of surgical-grade stainless steel. All the points are uh, double-resistant. We've got sapphire crystals standard, which is the hardest material you could have. It's a glass on top of the watch. Um, These are very robust. Yes, they look beautiful, but think it's a Michael Kors with a Swiss Army knife. Put it together in a Nappington watch. And they're like, okay, let's talk. So um, that's the approval process that I went through. It took um, almost two years to get uh, sold on. And we're not yet live in their stores yet. It should be happening any day um, from today. So it's it's a brand new thing. I can't wait to announce it to our customer base that we're going to be able to offer military discounts if they buy through the exchanges. Right, so that is fantastic. Congratulations. So again, to be clear, what you were saying was you can't fully verify someone's legitimate military credentials for a discount, but this exchange, only real military people can access it. That's correct. Got it. Very cool. Um, yeah, that's that's perfect and, and phenomenal for you guys. Um, okay, so uh, I know we're getting a little bit uh, short on time, and I wish we had even more because I'm, I'm loving talking to you, and I have so many more questions. But um, I want to ask you about uh, how you actually run the company nowadays and you know, advice for people who, who get to that point. Uh, but first, well, actually, two more things first. Uh, you alluded to the scuba thing. Um, uh, you're also a scuba diver yourself, are you not? Absolutely. Were you already doing that before you had the scuba idea about the watches, or was it after that? Mm, let me see. I got certified after I got my pilot's license, probably maybe three years after I started the company. Okay. And I, I didn't do it because I wanted to start a dive watch. Right. I did it because I just wanted to get scuba certified. No, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and it was funny because when I heard the most common other hobby that female pilots were doing, I was like, oh, that makes sense. I got my rating a little bit ago, so I like scuba dive. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was a very... It, it all worked. It yeah, no, it's, uh, again, it's, it makes perfect sense, yeah. Okay, so I have to take advantage of this. I had no idea, as I said, that you had been on Shark Tank. Uh, I love Shark Tank, so you have to indulge me in a little bit of a Shark Tank sidebar because uh, I love that show. Um, uh, I have certain things I assume about the process, uh, but you tell me, you know, I assume that obviously it takes a lot of paperwork and applying and they vet you and I'm sure you sign a million things that the deals aren't actually binding until they do their research and blah, blah, blah. Is that is that about right? Yes, it took me four years of applying. Yeah. I applied every year for four years until I was accepted. Wow. And then... 
again, this, these are things just I assume or guess from watching the show. Do they kind of tell you in advance, like, okay, like, here's the kind of thing we recommend you prepare, here's the kind of questions you'll probably be asked? Yes, they, sure. um, they, uh, you meet with the producers, I think it was once every week or once every couple weeks, just over the phone, uh-huh. and uh, you would give them your pitch, what you were going to say after you walked out on uh, from that hallway, right. and you stand in front of the sharks, and then the cameras say action, whatever it is, yeah. and then... Uh, and then you give your pitch. Yeah. And um, so you would work with the producers on the wordsmithing and mm-hmm. if there's going to be any entertainment value. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so that is all done in preparation ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I'm betting with some of my business mentors, some of my friends. They're grilling me on questions, and I'm having to answer them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing all of that prep work. Uh, for probably about four months before I actually pitched. Mm-hmm. And I was I'm curious, you said you talked to the producers on the phone once a week for, for how many weeks? Um, for about four months. Oh, four months yeah. leading up to when you go on. Wow. And I don't, I don't remember if it was once a week or once every two weeks. Sure, sure. But it was, it was an ongoing conversation. We had a scheduled time. Sure. And, um... Oh my gosh. And so, uh, first of all, I'm, you may not know this, but I'm always wondering, like, you know, what is their actual shooting schedule? Because these people are so busy, yet they manage to get together and shoot all these episodes year after year. And obviously, we see, you know, only a few minutes or so of each pitch. You know, my, I understand that the pitches can last an hour, two hours, whatever it is. So I have no idea what their, like, actual big overall schedule for this thing is. I'm, I always wonder about that. But anyway, um, so, and it, it, it's in L.A. that they shoot it, right? It is. Yeah. So, okay, so, and, and your actual time in front of them, as I said, is much longer than what we see, right? It could be a couple of hours or? That's true. Yeah. Um, and what else do you, do you remember about the experience? Was it, was it nerve wracking for you or what was it like? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It was anybody who's not nervous. Uh, you're probably crazy. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but it was, uh, you know, as, as prepared as I felt, you just really don't know. Um, it's funny. I think if I were to do it over again, I, the way I would do it, if anybody is applying for Shark Tank goes, it's really, people have to understand it's not about the business pitch. Mm-hmm. It's about the entertainment value. Interesting. This, this is a show. Right. So I went in very numbers heavy. Right. And I didn't tell the story of the company right. as well as I should have. Right. And it's a great and, story, by the way, in your case. It really is. It, it is. But, I'm, you know, you're asking for a large investment yeah. from multimillionaires across from the room from you, billionaires. Right. And, right. and so you, you're you like, okay, they, they made their money because they're smart. They understand numbers. I'm going to prep the numbers. Yeah. And so when I said, hey, we started off as aviation, proof of concept is done. Now we want to move into dive. Here is the numbers. Here is the numbers that show 
why this is going to be successful. They're like, well, why aren't you making men's watches? You know, they didn't know right. the story. Right. And where this was born from and how all of that was, um, was the entertainment right. side of it. Right. And this, that truly is what this show is about. It's about the entertainment. If you can entertain, then they're going to continue to ask questions because they're there to make a TV show. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point and a good one. You know, I, uh, I may be a little naive when I watch it and then I really, you know, not that it's not, not that it's fake or anything, but I, you know, I, I am, you know, I think it's a great show and you learn a lot from it. But anyway, um, that is a really good point. But to be fair, also, you do need both. You see plenty of times when people get reamed for not knowing their numbers, too. So, you know. I'm not saying don't know your numbers. <laughs> right. Know your numbers. No, of course. Um, yeah. but, I, but what I'm saying is, had, if I did it over again, I would have put less emphasis sure. on the numbers. I knew sure. my numbers. Sure. But I would have pitched more the story of the brand yeah, and no, what I was trying to build. It's a great point And, you know, uh, very... Uh, you know, very interesting. Okay, so um, so at this point now, the watch company is about 12 years old, is that right? Yeah. And uh, uh, you have uh, many different watches, as you said, around all the different themes and everything. Uh, you've expanded it. Uh, oh, by the way, I meant to ask too, sorry. When you first started, you said it was all just word of mouth, you know, very gradually building it up. Were you spending any money on marketing initially? Um, I really kind of bootstrapped the marketing. So it was it was calling up editors and publications and saying, hey, you guys should do a story. This is a really interesting thing. And so from that, I, I got a lot of press and publicity um, from online blogs, from magazines, from newspapers, um, because what I was doing was very different, and it was very unique. It was... You know, a, a watch company started by a 22-year-old female pilot is very different than how most watch companies are either formed or have been run. Yeah. And the watch industry is oftentimes based on heritage. My grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather started this watch company in their, you know, hall of a home in Paris and now we've grown to have our own city in Geneva. And, you know, this, this whole idea of yeah. heritage and of Swiss and European watchmaking and the finest materials and craftsmanship, and that's a big part of a lot of watch companies. Um, I was doing exactly the opposite of that. Yes, we're established in 2007. Nope, don't have any background in orology. Working this out. Right. Um, doing it from the user's side, not from the watchmaker's side. It's so funny how many watch designers come to me and say, oh, we want to design this watch for you. My first question to them is, what activity do you do outside of designing watches? Do you mm. bike? Do you hike? Right. Do you surf? Right. What do you do? Right. Because I want to know what the end user is going to use this watch for, and I need a designer that is going to have that in mind with the design. Love it. Absolutely. And I also forgot to ask you um, – so you got that initial, those initial investments, and you said you had some savings. Um, were you working another kind of day job when you first started doing it, or, or, did you, or were you able to, did you just decide to kind of, you know, start the company and, and live off your savings or whatever? 
Uh, I was doing another job. So I was a demo pilot for a company called Cirrus Aircraft. Mm -hmm. Um, They make a four-place piston airplane with a parachute. Mm -hmm. And uh, after I worked for them for about two years, um, from 2007 to 2009. Mm -hmm. And then... um, 2009, I left Cirrus and moved to Bend, Oregon, where I told you I met the young girl who was um, kind of the impetus for the sponsorship program. Yeah. And uh, worked for Lancer for about a year. And what I realized was I was really doing two full-time jobs. At that point, the company had grown so large that I was um, I had it's my own mailing uh, facility in Oregon. I was doing the aircraft sales from eight to five, I would come home, grab a quick bite for dinner. And then six to midnight, I was doing fulfillment of orders. So at that point I quit Lance there and said, I got to take this full on. So that was 2010. Yeah. So again, a very important lesson for potential entrepreneurs out there, you know, you know, you know, you, you talked about how you, you're from the beginning, you divided up your days, but, that's on top of still working a re- another job. And again, you know, we all love the idea of transitioning from working a job to being our own boss, having our own company, whatever it is. Um, but it doesn't happen instantly uh, by any means. And unless you're lucky enough to have enough money to support yourself, you know, you may have to do that transition time of, as you said, working two full-time jobs, yours and the one that's supporting you while you build up yours. So it's, you know, again, I think a lot of people think starting a business is much easier than it actually is. So I, uh, I think that's an important thing for people to, to keep in mind. Definitely. There is no one way up to the top of the mountain. Everybody kind of carves their own route. Well, beautifully put. Um, so now, though... Uh, you've been around those the 12 years, and you've, you've built it up uh, wonderfully. Um, how many employees do you have now? I have, uh, let's see, we've got three full-time remotes. So um, we do fulfillment out of Vegas and out of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So I have somebody running the, the Phoenix facility. Mm-hmm. And then um, we've got Portland, and we have Virginia. And then I have five staff that we hire for all of our events. At one point, we're doing 20 shows a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is everything from a jewelry show and a retailer show to the air shows and dive shows and automotive shows. We were at the Pennzoil 400 this year for the first year uh, promoting our new automotive watch. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that team. And then here in Las Vegas, I've got uh, four. Okay, so so still a very small staff. Um, yeah, we're about we're about a dozen. Wow. Okay. Okay. Cool. And you know, uh, getting the company going and building it up the way you have, and the design, the manufacturing is all one part of it. But then, what about the managing people part? You know, how do you how do you see your role as as owner and CEO in terms of you know, dealing with your with your employees? Um, well, everybody's style of leadership is very different. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I, I can't micromanage. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I don't, I don't think it's an effective way of leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I really try to be very task oriented with my team and mm-hmm. um, just empower them. I, I don't watch, you know, people don't have to be in by 9 a.m. on the dot or before. They show up at 9.15, that's fine. They don't have to stay 15 minutes later. I, I care better that the tasks are being accomplished that need to be right. accomplished. Right. And um, we have certain things that are always um, kind of status. Uh, we've got to maintain this level, which is if uh, somebody emails into the company, they get a response within 12 to 24 hours. Mm-hmm. If an order comes in before noon, it gets shipped out that day. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. Those things are uh, expected. So, getting getting the order shipped out the same day if the order comes in before noon that's impressive wow yeah it's it's a it's a it's a tough one to achieve during the holiday season but I I've guess. never not achieved it so that's, and it's well, important you know you sometimes absolutely. you leave it to the last minute and you want to make sure you get it I I love it I love it that's great um wow um okay uh. Two more questions. One is, um, you know, when you were starting it out and you, you had the initial money and you had the five-year promise of payback, and again, clearly you were confident and you had a very specific vision of what you were doing, but, you know, what gave you that real you know, belief that it would be successful. You know, it is scary. It is a risk. What what motivated you to go, no, I, you know, like, I, this is going to work? <laughs> uh, it was a fortune cookie. Really? Um, I've, <laughs> I've had this fortune uh, from a fortune cookie I got, I don't know how many years ago, but I've always kept it. And it said, act as though it were impossible to fail. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of my mantras in life. Um, I, there have been days that I took a customer call while I was in my little Mini Cooper, my 2005 Mini Cooper convertible, so Mm -hmm. it's super loud, Mm -hmm. um, and he called me out on it. He had an issue with the product, and he's like, are you in your car? Is this even a real company? (laughs) Oh, no. while I'm sitting in my car. So, um, 
when you look at it through a bigger lens and you you just act as though it were impossible to fail, then you keep your eyes on the target. Don't get distracted by the other stuff, by the minutia. And right. you you act as though it is not going to fail. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny, the story about the call and the car, I feel like so many entrepreneurs have a version of that kind of story, and it's that's that's real entrepreneurship. That's really what starting a business is, you know, or what it can be. So, yeah. And it's funny, you mentioned about making all the mistakes. I just saw this quote again just the other night, actually, uh, when something I was reading. I believe it was Henry Ford who said, um, those who never make mistakes work for those of us who have. So, yeah, you, 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 you definitely, uh, you know, choosing to, 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 to be the boss is definitely, you, you'll, you'll make mistakes. Um, Cool. So one last question, uh, which is, uh, it's funny too, you, when you were talking about, um, you know, how to start the company and everything, and you said uh, uh, something like, there's no one way to, to climb the mountain. Everybody has a different way of getting there or something like that. It, it was very well said, not clunky the way I just tried to repeat it. But it's a perfect segue to my last question for you, which is, I understand one of your other many um, cool feats that you've had in your life is you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Yes, I did last October. Tell us about that, if you would. Uh, well, um, it, uh, it again, it's something that happened as a result of the watch company. Ah. Uh, every year at the Women in Aviation Conference, we have a booth, and we sell our products there, and we catch up with customers, and one of the big things that we've um, established as our brand is if you wear your Aston watch to any event that we're at, bring it by the booth and we'll do a free battery change for you. Even ah. if the watch is working, who cares? It's send it in for your annual type of thing. We'll, right. just, we'll change it for free. It takes five minutes. Right. You can hang out with us for a bit. Yeah. And so it has develop this habit of people coming back to our booth and we get to know them, get to know our customers on a more, much more personal level. And one of my favorite customers um, uh, definitely became a friend um, over the years. She bought first Abingdon watch in 2012, and now I think she's bought four or five watches, either for herself or as gifts. Mm -hmm. um, but her name is retired Colonel uh, Laurel Beth Burkell. Mm -hmm. And she's an Air Force colonel. Um, she got in, about three years ago, she got in a, a horrible uh, helicopter crash oh. um, where she was one of two survivors. It was in Afghanistan. Oh, wow. And um, she was wearing her watch at the time. And she survived and her watch survived. And um, though that's a very morbid, we don't say our watches survive helicopter crashes. She does. <laughs> she does say that. Um but uh, but several of her colleagues um, died in that crash, and she was actually in one of those halo braces where they put the screws in your head and support you open your shoulders for a year. She oh. had to relearn how to do everything. Yeah. And um, so last March, well, March 2018, uh, she came up, as our customers do, and, and was looking for me and wanted to catch up. And, um and she said, you know, I'm going to be retiring from the Air Force this year. And I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. And she said, well, I'd like you to be at the retirement ceremony. Mm. I was like, of course. 
totally be at the retirement ceremony. I've never been to a military retirement ceremony, but there's a lot of beautiful pomp and circumstance and yeah. these uh, ceremonies and things that I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. Yeah. And she said, well, you know, there's a catch. And <laughs> I was like, what's up? Who name the time and the place? I'll be there. Yeah. It's going to be at the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro in October. Wow. <laughs> like, what? So um, she said, there's going to be a team of 13 people. I'd like you to be one of those 13. And uh, we're going to do the entire retirement ceremony. Uh, General Roser is going to be with us. He'll officiate the ceremony. And I'll have my retirement um, at the summit. And so that, I went, left that conference uh, and started to look at preparing to train for hiking a 19,000 foot mountain. Yeah. I'm not a hiker. I, I don't really do that. <laughs> yeah. This was really the first mountain that I ever hiked. Um, and, uh, and I practiced around some of the mountains here in Las Vegas, but you just, you can only prepare so much for uh, a summit like like Kilimanjaro mm-hmm. and it was amazing it was an incredible experience out of the 13 I was the youngest I was one of three non-civilians and get this I got medical evacuated for altitude sickness oh no yep I made it to the top um but then uh, I had a 42 percent oxygen saturation which if anybody's listening and they're in the medical field that they know what that means, that's pretty dire. Does that mean you didn't end up getting to be at the ceremony? I didn't make it to the ceremony. Um, I wasn't physically at the ceremony, even though Buff says you were totally there. Um, I did make it to the summit, but I made it up there about 40 minutes after they did. Oh, that's... I mean that that that's terrible. <laughs> it's still it's amazing that you climbed it, but it's terrible that you that I mean thank goodness you're okay, but it's terrible that you had to be evacuated and and couldn't go to the actual thing. Uh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I mean, I would have loved to have obviously been at the ceremony, right. um, and and I felt bad for a while. But Buff was like, "No, you were there. Don't even say you weren't there." Sure. You oh, were absolutely. Totally there. Of course, absolutely. And. Um, and, uh, and everything ended up okay. I did bring back a couple parasites, you know, Oof. to the States. And there was a few other medical issues that happened a few months afterwards. So it is not for the faint of heart. No. Um, but uh, uh, one of my friends, uh, actually her and I, we lost feeling in our toes for about three months. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> Yes. Well, again, you know, I'm glad you're okay, obviously, to say the least, and yet another uh, very impressive thing and uh, a good note to wrap up on. So this has been uh, an incredible conversation. I wish we had more time. Uh, Maybe we'll have you back on at some point to update us on on things going on with both of your organizations and anything else. Um, Obviously, as I said, we're going to post all your various links, anything you want to share in the episode notes. Um, But real quick, do you want to tell people uh, as well where they can, they can get to you? Definitely. Uh, The Abingdon Company and the Abingdon Foundation. Uh, Abingdon Foundation is really where I'd love to drive people to go and help support our efforts. Uh, The website is Mm -hmm. abingdonfoundation.org. If you're in the New York 
New York area, you know of Abingdon Square. It's spelled the exact same way. Right. A-B-I-N-G-D-O-N, like Delta, yep. O-N. Yep. Um, so AbingdonFoundation.org. Uh, if you're in a steam industry, uh, please reach out to us, uh, especially as a woman, if you would like to speak at some of the schools. Uh, help us with um, that effort and getting into the schools. Donate your money so that we can build these education kits for these 22 industries that we have listed on our website. And um, if, you, if this is a cause that's important to you, we, we do need more scientists, more tech, more engineers, more people in the arts, more mathematicians, and everything in between. When you have more people at that table, men, women, different ethnicities, different races, different backgrounds, you get a better conversation, which ends up becoming a better product or a better change for society. So we're trying to make that table more inclusive. Um, so please do do help us out with that. Absolutely. And again, I, I have to say, you know, just getting to talk to you today, you know, it is clear to me that both directly through the foundation and also by example, from the life you have led and are leading, uh, I certainly think you are uh, inspiring uh, young people in general, people of any age, and certainly women to, to, to accomplish these kinds of things and do whatever they want to do. Um, so I think it's fantastic. So Abingdon Mullen, thank you again so much. And uh, for everybody listening, if you want to reach me about the podcast for any reason, you can email Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word. Craft Business Life Podcast at gmail.com. And we have a new thing now. We do have a GoFundMe page. Um, you know, this podcast will always be completely free and completely ad free. But if you want to support it, you can do so at the GoFundMe. It's GoFundMe.com slash craft business life podcast and of course that link will be in all our info as well so abingdon thank you again everybody listening thank you so much and uh, until next time bye bye